This is The Global Gambit. In The Global Gambit podcast, we focus on the big picture of geopolitics, foreign policy and current affairs. Each episode, your host, Piotr Kurzin, brings you interviews and panels with top-tier academics, journalists and policymakers. Seeking to make sense of the news, go beyond what's presented to us and question and critically analyse these matters. This is The Global Gambit. Greetings, everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Global Gambit with your host, Piotr. Um, Today is a very, very, um, I think, going to be a very powerful conversation. Um, I'm delighted to be uh, speaking with uh, Lucia Vasilenko, and I hope I didn't mispronounce her surname too much then. Um, She is a member of the Ukrainian parliament uh, as a people's deputy of Ukraine in uh, the ninth Ukrainian Verkhovna Rada. Uh, she's been a member of the Ukrainian permanent delegation to the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe as well, and is president of the Internal Interparliamentary Union's Bureau of Women Parliamentarians, which is fantastic. She's also founder of the Legal Hundred, a human rights non-governmental organisation which uh, focuses on providing assistance to servicemen and veterans. So, something that will be um, very much relevant in the post-war phase. Uh, she's also studied uh, human rights uh, in depth as a, in international law as well. So I'm very excited to have this conversation. And given the events that we've seen in the past um, few days around in and around Izium and also the remarkable um, and fantastic uh, counteroffensive by the Ukrainian forces around Kharkiv, uh, I think this is going to be a, um, a very important discussion. Lucia, thank you very much for joining us. No, you're welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Um, no, absolutely. So I think the first thing I'd like to ask you a little bit about is, um, you know, a lot of the questions are, you know, I've seen you giving um, appearances in the media, but uh, from what I recall, Poland has been meeting throughout the war, even during the period when the Russian forces were very, very close to Kiev. So I just wanted to hear, as well as your professional perspective, of course, but you're just your personal your personal perspective, you know, you as an individual, how have you been, um, I believe you have some children as well, how have you been coping uh, during this time, given the pressure on you with your um, position as well? Oh, that's uh, a multi-part uh, part question. So let, let me break it down. So first of all, uh, about Parliament's work, you are absolutely right. The Parliament of Ukraine, the Verkhovna Rada, has been working uninterrupted since day one. That means on the 24th of February, when uh, Russia escalated its aggression to absolutely unprecedented levels, uh, we as members of Parliament gathered in the building in the center of Kiev, where we always gather, and we voted at 7 a.m. on the introduction of the martial law in Ukraine. And since then, the session of parliament has remained open. We uh, have uh, reunited many a times, and we have passed over 300 pieces of legislation and so far in these last six months. In the beginning, in the first months or so, usually uh, up for voting would be the legislation which was 100% agreed. I don't know if you can hear the noise in the background which is interrupting us a bit. This is the air raid siren in Kiev right now where I'm located. 
This is something very typical. So you might hear that a couple of times through the conversation, depending how many times Russia decides to launch missiles in the next 40 minutes. Uh, but anyway, under, under such circumstances, with such noises in the background, the, the RADA has, uh, has continued its work. And uh, in the beginning, as I said, we would vote on legislation which was uh, completely uh, unanimously agreed on by all members of all parties who sit in the parliament. And later, as, um, as the situation around Kiev stabilized and it became safer to remain in the building of parliament for uh, longer periods of time. We would, uh, we would, as we now do, sit and deliberate uh, the, the legislation. Uh, amendments can be passed and um, we deliberate the amendments as well. So pretty much very slowly, but it's getting back to normal as as life in Ukraine overall, despite having war in the background of our everyday lives, uh, we still try to to live the best life we can live with this very inconvenient circumstance around us. Thank you for that. Well, I think our listeners, both on the podcast and on the space, will be able to hear those those sirens. I can um, from my end. So. Uh, please, you know, if at any point you need to sort of move out or something, let me know. But um, this is the, uh, the reality of, of, of live streaming sort of discussions like this. Yeah, you can re- really feel the, the real situation and yes, exactly. circumstances in Kiev. But I do trust in our air defense systems. And I do believe that they are rather strong in the part of Kiev where I'm located at the moment. I'm glad to hear that. Um, and uh, again, I think it's amazing that you're uh, taking the time to do that whilst you've got um, explosions and artillery fire going on around you. So, um, you know, all the credit to you. But I think that's one of the things, actually, just to in when the um, when February 24th was, you know, appearing, so to speak, or, or coming on the horizon. I think one of the things that everybody uh, who was observing the situation and the escalation was the just sort of ability for Ukrainians to not really, they were just going about their business continually, very pragmatic. There was obviously preparations being made, but everyone was still in cafes and bars doing things. Um, And it was only until really the next, what, the 48 hours up until the actual invasion that proper, proper responses were being made. Is that a, is that a fair assessment or is it more that there was, people were quite fearful or they were just trying to get on with life as much as possible? Well, the thing is, it depends, like, who you cannot generalize the whole population. Clearly, the military was preparing. Otherwise, all of these uh, uh, predictions that were being made uh, from Kremlin to Washington about Ukraine being able to withstand for a maximum of 72 hours would have come true. But they, of course, didn't come true. We are now, it's what, the 205th day of Ukraine standing strong and united and actually pushing back on Russia, and uh, we are still fine. So without our military uh, being uh, in proper training and accumulating and mobilizing forces to actually be able to withstand a Russian attack, none of this would have been a reality. And quite possibly the grim predictions would would have come true. Uh, so the military was preparing. As for the population and like people like myself included, 
I mean, we didn't really have a choice, did we? Uh, our only choice was to stay here, live our life as normal as possible for as long as possible, and just to continue continue fighting for our right to exist as a country and as a nation. And I, I was getting all sorts of questions from different media and also from colleagues in other parliaments just in the weeks leading up to the 24th of February, all of them uh, sort of implying the same, like, you know, the war is going to start, uh, all the intelligence in every single country is telling us that Russia is amassing troops on the border, um, the war is going to start. And that's it. The full stop was there because then the, nothing followed. There was no suggestion about anything. Uh, the West would not hear about giving Ukraine more weapons so that Ukraine could actually prevent this attack. There was no talk and there could be no talk about providing evacuation or humanitarian routes for, for the people because there was no attack, because nobody could actually even think about how, how bad it would be, neither in Ukraine nor beyond. So sort of there was this talk and there was this uh, tension in the air that precedes uh, any kind of uh, uh, eruption of a conflict or, or, or of a military tension as it was. But uh, to be honest, nobody was actually prepared to do anything about it. Interesting. Um, hmm, that's not something I, uh, I considered actually. Well, uh, building on that, because, uh, as you know, you're relating to the, the war has continued. I'm curious if you could take us through a little bit how the the work you've been doing in Parliament has changed, how it's evolved. You know, have priorities shifted? Have there been uh, internal divisions amongst the different parties, the different entities within Parliament about how to respond to the, uh, the you know, uh, events that were unfolding, say, with Mariupol or when Butcher was um, and the events around uh, Butcher emerged around sort of the western part of Ukraine versus the east. You know, how, how have the um, dynamics within Parliament been during the um, conflict? Well, um, uh, the parliament has been united, extremely united. I'm from an opposition party, but I hardly ever say this anymore because it's absolutely irrelevant. Whether you're from the ruling party, the majority, or from the opposition, you are Ukrainian. You are a Ukrainian member of parliament, representative of the Ukrainian people, and you stand united the same as the Ukrainian people stands united. And you stand with the people fighting off this one single evil, which is the Russian aggression. Um, and, you know, through the, these last six months, there has been no issue around that or about that. Everybody was just so absolutely shocked by every single war crime that has been uncovered first in Bucha and all the other deoccupied areas around Kiev. And now the same kind of shock is sinking in as we see what uh, Russia has left behind in Izum, in Kupiansk, and in all of these other deoccupied areas of the Kharkiv region. And again, this is just evidence of war crimes, crimes against humanity. And we are all united in the fact, in the conclusion, that Russia has committed these crimes. And Russians, Russian soldiers, Russian commanders, Russian political elite and leaders will need to bear the burden of the responsibility. And the responsibility must be proved uh, and uh, must be ensured by international tribunals. And you will not find, I don't think at this point in time, a single member of the Ukrainian parliament who thinks otherwise. 
and that is something that I want to touch upon in a little bit more depth later on. Um, but before we do that, uh, one of the main things that I learned whilst doing my studies in strategy, strategic studies, was you know this uh, critical but also delicate balancing act of relations between the military and the political or the government. Um, Clausewitz, who is a well-known uh, military um, general, the uh, the Prussian general, um, talked about the importance of the Trinity, uh, and I feel that this is as relevant here. Uh, I'm just curious for your, not necessarily on the Clausewitz aspect, but more specifically about what's the relationship been between the Ukrainian military and the government. Now, obviously, I understand it's all unified and working towards the same goal, but has there been a because on the Russian side, we've had a huge issue with vertical and horizontal communications, let alone logistics and desertification. But I'm just curious from the Ukrainian point of view, what's the dynamics being the comms, the cooperation uh, in the resistance? Well, in the last eight years, Ukrainians have developed a huge respect for the military. If you look at the polls, most of the time, if Ukrainians are asked who do you trust the most, they will say the military. And I think this helped us immensely on the 24th of February because there was no issue about introducing a martial law, about handing over control, about allowing the, the, the chief of staff, the military commanders decide for most of the country. There was just an understanding that the military will act in the benefit of the people. Well, essentially, because the military is the people. On the 24th of February, and I keep going back to that date because it's just so significant uh, in, in the history of Ukraine and in our everyday lives here, we had cues in all of the voyenkamat, uh, uh, which is just these military commissariats where you go to sign up to the military, there was literally a, a, like queues in every single city because people wanted to check if they were registered or not. They were ready to be called up. People were going in to sign up and to be called up and to form military units. Territorial defense units were being formed. And everybody just understood that it's up to them to do whatever they can to defend themselves, their families, their homes and their land. And I think this is where this, this trust and this cooperation stems from an understanding that we are all in it together and we are all rowing the same boat in the same direction and nobody in the process has any other interests. Fascinating. Um, no, I think that makes a lot of sense um, and I can see why. Well, that does actually makes me think of another question then uh, to tag on to that one, which is, you know, in the run-up to this, we, we've seen a lot of foreign um, support uh, in the form of, you know, voluntary fighters. Um, a, a friend of mine, actually, from the apartment building I, I live with in, in D.C. here in Washington in America, uh, just got back from, from fighting on the front lines. Um, but one of the entities was also this this legion, um, as well as also um, a few other sort of committed um, sort of veterans going over. How Where have they been positioned? How large is the force now? You know, what is the um, on the military side that the foreign support in that way? I think you are referring, if I'm correct, to the foreign legion that was formed. Yes, that's the one. Yes. So uh, basically under Ukrainian legislation, first of all, if you are a foreigner, you can sign a contract with the Ukrainian armed forces for three years. 
and you can serve in the Ukrainian military just as a Ukrainian would serve in the Ukrainian military under the same conditions. And the second option that was opened in February uh, was the the possibility to serve in these territorial defense units. And essentially, a foreign legion was formed within these territorial defense units. And uh, territorial defense units are just that. They are formed within, I don't know, the, the vicinity of the Kiev region or Kharkiv region or Lviv region and uh, essentially their goal is to protect that territory. Now, with the Foreign Territorial Defense Unit, it was about protecting Ukraine. And foreign nationals could sign up through embassies, through Ukrainian embassies, sign a contract again with the state of Ukraine and come in and and serve defending defending Ukraine, defending freedom and defending democracy. And uh, their status would be just an integrated unit of the overall national Ukrainian defense and security system. I don't know if that answers your question or if you want it, to do it certainly gives me, uh, No, it certainly gives me a better idea. I think that might have been the one that, um, his name's Bowden, uh, may well have been a part of. Uh, no, thank you very much for, the, for outlining that. Moving on a little bit, I want to ask you a little bit also about the intel aspect of this. Because you went to the beginning of the conversation. Um, about you know the build up to February twenty fourth and some of the information that was being uh, released by the British and the Americans, particularly now, in many analysts' eyes, that was quite a you know on point sort of uh, amount of information that was released in, in, in and particularly from the United States perspective. I guess what I'm trying to get at is a, a, an in depth amount of information that we've never really seen made public before, but you know. Since then, we've had the sinking of the Moskva. We've had strikings into Russian territory at times, as well as the um, you know strikes into Crimea as well. Um, and then that's without even going into the counteroffensive that uh, that came in the past couple of weeks, which we'll come to in a second. But I'm curious for your take on this. What, how much of a role has foreign intelligence been? Is it overblown, or has it been as crucial as say the weaponry that's being supplied as well? It's hard for me to answer because I'm not a military person. I don't have a military background. So I can just say from from a perspective of the lay citizen, I would say, who's the consumer of this information. Um, it's absolutely unprecedented that so many intelligence reports would be published. And I think they did play their role in... Uh, having the population of Ukraine more or less ready. So as I said, we the tension was there. We understood that something was brewing and that something would happen. We definitely couldn't predict, and I actually don't think anybody could predict to what extent this war would blow up in everyone's faces. But it helped that people were thinking it over, that uh, actually most families probably had some kind of contingency plan, or at least on a psychological, mental level, people were prepared to absorb what was given them better than if none of this was out and if this would be just concealed information and then out of the blue uh, missiles started firing all over Ukraine was people still thinking that, okay, nothing was happening. So I I think that definitely helped, at least on this kind of human uh, level of being psychologically prepared. In terms of... um, 
militarily, uh, this is something that I can comment on because I'm pretty sure that this intelligence wouldn't be released if it wasn't agreed by uh, the UK, the US, together with the Ukrainian command. So um, I imagine this was also part of the counteroffensive in this hybrid war, uh, which is happening. And most of the wars of the 21st century are, are hybrid wars because it's not just the warfare which is being used, uh, the, typical, the, the, the standard um, warfare, physical warfare, which is being applied and used on the ground in the battlefield. But it's also uh, information, propaganda. It's how you use this information, what you what you give to, to each side uh, to consume in terms of information. This, this all plays a role. So I guess, I guess it was uh, pre-planned in a way. But just to that, though, um, to sort of perhaps a slightly more provocative question, but there have been some people, experts in quotation marks, who make the claims that, you know, Ukraine wouldn't have been able to have done this. They would never have done, the, you know, had made the sinking of the Moskva had it not been for Western intelligence. What do you say to that? Um, Ukrainian intelligence is not, that bad so um i guess it's not just about uh western intelligence and at the end of the day it's not the intelligence which uh, sank the ship it's also the skill set applied to actually physically and technically do it so i think that at least some credit needs to go to the ukrainian military who was behind the, the actual operation of the sinking that's fair enough. Um, I agree with you. Uh, I like to throw in the curveball question occasionally, but um, no, I think that's a that's a fair point uh, and distinction to be made. Now, I want to come to um, the counteroffensives themselves um, first, and simply, how do you, how did you feel? Um, what were your reactions when you first began receiving information intel uh, about the amount of progress that was being made? Uh, and then, the second question, more a bit more pragmatic, uh, was the claim that. Um, and I know that we've got a, um, a good friend, uh, John Spencer, listening in, uh, who, who doesn't agree with this assessment. But some people have stated that the Kherson counteroffensive, the Kherson front, was actually a feint, um, whilst the Ukrainian forces actually got ready to conduct the Kharkiv counteroffensive as the main, you know, pushback. What's your take on that? Rubbish, or, or or is there some truth to it? I'm very curious. Again, I know it's a military kind of question, but from your position in Parliament. What's your thoughts? Well, the counteroffensive is happening on several fronts. And uh, the very fact that it started happening and that it was successful already brought smiles on so many people's faces. I remember the day I was actually in a big conference with a lot of people from government, not just from Ukrainian government, but from, from sort of all over the world. And uh, literally, all of us who were Ukrainian were just sitting there on our phones reading the news of the advancements of the Ukrainian army. And you could see exactly in the room who was Ukrainian and who wasn't, because all the Ukrainians were, had these like huge radiant smiles on their faces. And we had them for the longest time since since February, really, since uh, the, the aggression escalated. And it felt really good because it's, it was sort of the first kind of days when we started at least started to slowly breathe out that long inhale that we all took on that morning of the 24th of February. But again, I say this uh, with complete understanding that 
it's too early to to really uh, celebrate the victory or to even allow yourself these smiles for too long because the the counteroffensive is still ongoing anything can happen advances are good we celebrate our wins we congratulate our soldiers but at the same time we also mourn those who have given their lives for ukraine and at the same time we also cry over the losses that families have endured that children have endured and we remain shocked and absolutely numb at the number of crimes that Russia has committed, at the number of graves uncovered, at the number of tortured bodies exhumated from the the earth. And this is something to take in, this is something to process, and this is also something that we need to continue doing stuff about. And by doing stuff about, I mean fighting off the Russian offensives, pushing the Russians out from Ukraine, setting up international tribunals to bring the, uh, those responsible to justice and making sure that Russia pays reparations for all the damage and all the losses they have caused to Ukraine and its people and that these reparations are paid through maybe several generations so it really does sink in to the Russians that something was terribly wrong with the Kremlin regime, and that something terribly wrong can never be repeated again. Thank you for sharing that. It must be quite challenging talking about it when you've got quite an array of thoughts and emotions and things passing through your mind. I, I think since we've touched upon it, I, I would be curious to hear your what's the um, what's the latest. Um, if you have any information or sort of perspectives on on what, what is being found in Isia. Um, and and just more, not only Izium, but the areas that was uh, liberated by the Ukrainians um, in the counteroffensive. Uh, what's the uh, what is the status at the moment of some of the smaller settlements as well? Um, yeah, so Izium has really become a, a sort of a collective for all the towns and uh, and villages were liberated in the Kharkiv region, the same as Bucha has become a collective name for all the t- towns and villages around Kiev, not to the least because they have quite difficult and unpronounceable names in English. Uh, but uh, so far what we see is uh, mass graves, uh, mass grave of uh, 450 graves or so, and actually more are being uncovered because yesterday it was 400, this morning it was already 440 bodies, and uh, the latest that I checked a couple of hours back, it, it was 450. I don't know how many more bodies will be found, but uh, really the majority of them are civilian the large majority of them are civilian because just 25 uh, bodies of uh, military or at least in military uniform were found in this mass grave so really we're talking about a civilian mass grave and um, the bodies that are being pulled out they are uh, often with with, again hands tied behind backs uh, with uh, remains of um, ropes or wire around necks so these people who who died they were murdered they were killed and they were uh tortured before their life was taken from them 
and tortured in the most inhumane ways in basements of uh, several houses in these uh, towns and villages in the Kharkiv region. Evidence has been found that torture chambers were set up with absolutely uh, flabbergasting and ghastly instruments of torture that you know shouldn't be applied to any human being ever. And um, the the worst thing is that it seems that the Russian occupiers, they didn't differentiate between anyone. I mean, they applied this torture to grown men, women, teenagers, children. And the, the question, in my mind at least, is why? What for? Uh, again, I'm not I'm not uh, a, a military expert, and I don't have any military background. But just in in my logical senses, I mean, torturing uh, members of the civilian population will just turn that civilian population against you, and will just unite them in hatred. Clearly, if you're setting up a regime, an occupation regime, and if you're looking to rule these people you're not going to get anywhere by keeping uh, this form of uh, terror and terrorizing uh, the local communities. So that leads to another conclusion, that the Russians were not coming in and were not occupying to rule Ukrainians. They were coming in to um, humiliate and to uh, basically kill, destroy, and erase Ukrainians from Ukraine. On the other side of this uh, is the quantity of POWs that are now being uh, collected, if you want to use that word, by the military, um, by the Ukrainian forces. Now, estimations from what I've seen vary a lot in terms of how many. Uh, I don't know if the Ukrainian forces have released um, a, a, a figure of how many POWs they have. No, uh, no, they haven't. And I you wouldn't see this number because, again, this is something that uh, military tends to keep secret in order not to give the other side any advantages. Interesting. Um, but if we could build on this a little bit more, what uh, I know um, Zelensky has made it very well established that they're going to you know, trial them and process them according to um, international human rights law and international humanitarian law. But could you fill us in a little bit more on sort of what the plan is, what the intentions are with the quantity of POWs? Are they going to be used in exchanges or are they going to be first and foremost put through these um, uh, processes? Well, absolutely. The end goal is uh, to use them in exchanges. Uh, you know, keeping foreign prisoners, it's uh, its not exactly something anybody would want. It, it costs money. It's, uh, it's not an easy task. Uh, I mean, Ukraine is a country which prides itself in uh, uh, keeping to uh, international law, especially international humanitarian law. If we have... Uh, knowledge of uh, soldiers um, uh, breaching the rules of uh, the Geneva Conventions, the Hague Convention and other acts of international humanitarian law, uh, we act on it and we bring these uh, soldiers to justice. It's not our strategy to break rules, unlike Russia. Uh, so with that being said, uh, Ukraine would need to provide, uh, and we are providing, uh, due conditions for the maintenance of these prisoners of war and um, 
again, it's not cheap. Uh, so we are interested in exchanging them and exchanging them for our prisoners of war, for the Azovstal, uh, uh, Azovstil uh, warriors who were taken in prisoner by the Russians, especially for uh, the women of uh, the Azovstil uh, plant that have been taken as prisoners of war by Russians. Uh, so, so this is all on the agenda, of course. I don't know if you want any other details. No, on that's, this. Um, no it's interesting you mentioned the Estival, um forces particularly um, because they were made part of the group that, you know, many falsely accused them of being the, you know, far-right group and that, you know, this sort of, this is what basically Russia uses as the justification for its Nazi propaganda or its Nazi narrative. They, they've been what incorporated into the um, internal ministry, and um, uh, that's not the case. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Uh, these uh, you know false uh, accusations that were given about those uh, hardened fighters that were defending the plant for several weeks. Uh, well, first of all, so Ukrainian military units uh, often adopt not uh not the, not just the formal name which they have but a sort of informal kind of wartime pseudonym and this is exactly what what, what was happening with the azov uh, military battalion which is essentially a military unit a registered military unit within the defense and security system of ukraine uh, it has its number it has its proper name it's just that among the people uh it's known as the azov battalion and uh, calling it a sort of, uh, of whatever the Russians call it, what was it, a Nazi or a neo-Nazi organization, that is just absolutely wrong because we are talking about, again, a registered military unit within the Ukrainian defense and security system. This military unit has a uniform. This military unit obeys the military statute, the military laws. They have their commanders. They uh, wear the the weapons and their insignia in open, uh, and they are subject to the uh, laws, the humanitarian laws that that govern wars, uh, the rules uh, of of war, and they are also subject to the protection of international humanitarian law. This is why, since they are taken prisoners, they must be treated as prisoners of war. Well, thank you for clarifying that because I think there's a lot of confusion and misinformation around it, um, which can get frustrating. So, Lucia. Um, I want to ask a little bit more away from the military and towards civil society, because this is something I think you might have had some uh, good exposure to, perhaps. But what are your role, views on the role of civil society in, in, in sort of helping to build the resistance around this um, and galvanising Ukrainians' uh, continued um, uh, motivation, uh, morale, better word, uh, particularly via social media? Um, you know, we've we've seen so many diaspora, Ukrainian diaspora, uh, leading the way with uh, Ukrainian sort of um, uh, NGOs and charities and and fundraising or sort of organisations appearing. Uh, I'd just love to hear a little bit more from your perspective. What you've seen? Have you met people in Ukraine who've been doing this? Um, could you fill us in a little bit about the roles of civil society? Excuse me. I myself uh, was was a civil society and part of a large group of civil society organizations uh, before joining 
parliament and entering into politics. Uh, so uh, you mentioned that I'm a founder of the uh, uh, Legal 100 NGO. And that's, hello, can you hear me still? Yes, 100%. Okay, okay good. Good. Because, yeah, my phone was doing something wrong, uh, something strange. But, yeah, so I'm, uh, I founded the Legal 100 NGO in 2014 uh, as an organization helping Ukrainian uh, veterans and Ukrainian military and members of their families get the benefits that they were entitled to by the state. And essentially, I mobilized a pro bono network of lawyers to do that. And I was part of many different, uh, my organizations and myself, uh, we were part of many or um, associations of um, civil society organizations of volunteer organizations that formed in 2014 I think this is when there was a kind of upsurge and revival of Ukrainian civil society uh, which supported uh, the government and covered where government lacked. And a lot of these organizations, they continue functioning the same as the Legal 100 does uh, to this day. And they continue uh, providing um, an extra shoulder to lean on when uh, the government is not coping. As I said, we are very much united as a society uh, because we have one common enemy that is threatening the very fact of our existence. And when it comes to fighting an existential war, like Ukraine is fighting, uh, you you use every single resource that you have and unite, you unite in every possible way that you can. And uh, civil society organizations are actually playing a huge role in this, whether it be uniting to counter uh, Russian propaganda, whether it be uniting to counter uh, Russian cyber attacks, whether you are uh, from the segment of um, uh, healthcare and social care, and uh, you you form NGOs that in the free time uh, go off to the front line to to treat the wounded, or go off to the occupied territories to to treat the people who are there. Uh, you know, every single Ukrainian finds uh, himself or herself in the position where they use the skill set that they have to to help the efforts in liberating the country. Indeed. It makes me think about that, but also the amount of international volunteering, volunteerism, if that's the word, um, that we've seen. This, um, I'm sure you're familiar with it, and I'm sure we have many people listening in, both on the Twitter spaces and possibly on the podcast recording, of um, this NAFO um, and the meme, the meme army, um, and the role of social media just more broadly. I'm just curious for your thoughts on that because it's something that I've been pretty astounded with. Um, I'm pretty dinosaur when it comes to social media in some ways, but um, you know, how do you feel about this? This fact that we've got such a absolute, I don't know, sheer exhaustive uh, quantity of people who are doing what they can online through open source intelligence, through fundraising, through schemes of all forms to to build support and uh, uh, for Ukraine and solidarity with Ukraine. How do you how do you feel about that? I actually welcome every single um, instrument that exists today in the world to draw attention to Ukraine and to draw attention to to this fight Ukraine is leading on behalf of everyone uh, for democracy and against 
uh, empires coming back against a very particular empire of evil uh, uh, led by Russia and the Kremlin to, to come back into this world. So whatever instrument anyone comes up with and chooses to use to help Ukrainians in this fight, of course, I'll always be all for it. Although maybe sometimes I myself won't be understanding it to the full extent because I'm also kind of dinosaur when it comes to all, all forms of social media and digital and so on. But, um, you know, it looks like fun a lot of the time when when it comes to digital. And I hear of projects all over the place. Uh, in these last six months, I've uh, dedicated my time a lot to do uh, international media and to make sure that the world keeps informed. And with that, I've done a fair bit of um, of work travel to speak to fellow parliamentarians uh, in in different places across Europe and I was so surprised in in Iceland I met uh, some support staff of uh, of the parliament uh, of Iceland of a party of Iceland and uh, they were just normal IT guys and they were saying to me we actually support Ukraine every night we go online and we start spreading the messages about uh, the need to stop Russian war and the need of Russians to stop killing Ukrainian children and they showed me this like massive network of uh, IT specialists and IT gurus who just brainstorm these crazy ideas and then implement them uh, at different points uh, in the in the 24-hour day because they are located in different parts of the globe and in different uh, time uh, time frames, which is just amazing and excellent and really inspiring. And actually, that's that's the kind of support that you feel uh, coming from absolutely everyone. So going back to your previous question about civil society in Ukraine, it's not just civil society in Ukraine. It's basically the whole world becoming a volunteer for democracy and for the fight of democracy that Ukraine is leading right now. Indeed. I think this is one of the biggest elements about this war uh, is the fact it's been, it's it's the biggest covered in history, really. You know, much like you could say Vietnam was the first time you had coloured pictures. And then um, uh, the Gulf War was arguably the first time we had 24-7 rolling coverage or when CNN were able to really get close up to some of the um, the conflict that was really happening in Iraq and Kuwait. Um, but Ukraine is fascinating for the role of social media and the continued coverage of, you know, if you've got a phone, if you've got any form of technology where you can then connect to the internet, you can share information about what's going on. Um, and it's been amazing to see, you know, these these accounts grow. And just for your information, so NAFO stands for the North Atlantic Feather Organization, uh, which came out of the um, of the of the war, and it talks about. Um, people who are growing uh, as part of the uh, resistance to to, to sort of uh, using a, a meme called Shiba Inu, I think, um, mm -hmm. and, and the meme character Cheems. I'm not a memer, as the audience listening can pretty well tell at this point. Um, but it's, it's, it's fascinating how uh, these things develop and, and have gained so much, um, so much momentum behind them um, that I, I think it's incredible and, and, and what it's going to mean for the post-reconstruction. And, and onto that, that brings me into the, one of my final questions for you, which is uh, the post-reconstruction phase. Um, 
estimates vary based on what I've seen and also what I've worked on a little bit. There was a report that came out a couple of weeks ago called the Ukraine Rapid Damage and Needs Assessment, which was essentially looking at the period from the 24th of February to June 1st um, and the damage that had been done, the uh, estimated cost it will take to rebuild it, so on. The World Bank puts it at about $349.50 billion. Now, obviously, this number is going to increase um, as the war continues and estimations from uh, the Ukrainian government uh, to the European Commission, I think, or uh, Infrastructure Bank of the European Union has said that this may reach a trillion. Uh, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on on the post-reconstruction phase, particularly because whilst we talk about reparations of Russia, personally, in my mind, it's going to be difficult to see how easy that is to be facilitated whilst Putin remains in power. So what do you have to say on on the post-reconstruction phase? Clearly, Ukraine's well, well planned ahead for this, but just I'd love you to break it down a little bit from what you've worked on, seen, etc., Mm-hmm. So, uh, first of all, the number you you mentioned, uh, a little over three hundred billion, um, that's actually the sum of um, assets, which of Russian assets that uh, are uh, located and available on various uh, in various jurisdictions outside of Russia. Uh, so, in various countries, this is why we have the sum of. 350 billion, something close to that. But in truth, the damage and the losses that Russia has caused to Ukraine way closer to 1 trillion and maybe already over a trillion. And to this, it is my opinion that we need to add also the the losses and the damage that war of aggression that Russia wages has caused to the countries which are now supporting Ukraine, which are giving weapons to Ukraine, which are giving humanitarian aid to Ukraine, the countries who are hosting uh, millions of Ukrainians who were forced to flee from their homes, saving themselves and their children from the atrocities of war. Uh, So all of this needs to be assessed and put in one extensive bill that will be presented to Russia as a result of the international trials which are bound to take place. And after that, it's up to the international community to sit down and uh, figure out, together with the next government of Russia, possibly might be a transition government or an interim government, how Russia is going to to pay back all of these reparations. And they must pay back. We've discussed this earlier in the show. It's uh, the reparations. It's, it's not just about, you know, punishing or revenge. It's, it's about driving the message home that the behavior was, was wrong, that it was crimes that were being committed and that really you know, paying these reparations is an everyday reminder that you will never do wrong again and that you will never let a regime or a ruler in your country that will do such wrongs, that will repeat such wrongs again. Without the proper trials bringing to justice, without the proper reparations, there's no guarantee that even after every single Russian soldier is kicked out from the territory of Ukraine, uh, Russia will not 
regroup, reconvene, you know, grow these feelings of hatred towards Ukrainians even to a larger level, although it seems unimaginable how, how much more hate they can have for us, and then re-attack us again. And not just us as Ukraine, but maybe re-attack you know, the Baltic states or some other Eastern European country or whatever their state government can have in their mind. So really, uh, again, you know, paying these reparations is uh, is a prevention mechanism. And the way to do this is, uh, I would see, say that uh, there is now um, a military Rammstein where uh, 53 countries gather together to figure out the, the military strategy of how to physically push Russia out. But there must be a similar convention of countries, like-minded states that form essentially an anti-Putin coalition, and they must have a uh, sanctions Rammstein so sanctioning Russia until all the international trials are over and until a reparations mechanism is figured out. And then there must be a reparations Rammstein as well, where uh, the political leaders of these same countries that formed the anti-Putin coalition, the ministers of foreign affairs gather together and figure out the instruments and the mechanisms by which Russia will be paying back. And the goal is the overall goal is to make sure that never again really starts meaning never again. And that goal is then broken down into several stages. Uh, Russia, as the vast country it is, with their vast army, which uh, used to be the second largest army in the world, but it must be demilitarized. Uh, it must be stripped of its nuclear arsenal. It uh, must be democratized, deputinized, and essentially everything must be done to make sure that Russia becomes a safe neighbor for all the states with which it has borders and for all of the international free democratic world. So there's there's a lot there to unpack, and it's um, it's one of the most, I think, sensitive and... Uh, disputed parts of this whole um, affair now. There are some perspectives that go as far as to say the the forced, uh, forcible, uh, you know, breakup of Russia um, to allow certain oblasts, provinces, whatever, to to break away, such as um, Chechnya comes to mind. But the problem I see with that is just. I mean, the denuclearization of the country is, I don't think, something that will be on the horizon for a while. The deputinization of it is a priority, and this leads me to a question about it then, because my concern is that there is no, um, at least in my mind, um, reasonable alternative to him in the sense that in, you know, um, other part like in Lukashenko, uh, in uh, Belarus, we have despot Lukashenko, but we have essentially a government in exile, the, the, those who won the elections in 2020, ready to go. There is no such equivalent in Russia. All the quotation mark opposition parties are just part of, well, they do exactly what Putin wants and support him. And even if there are opposition parties, they're not official ones because they're not allowed to register. So, you know, one wonders who replaces Putin. You know, the, the names have varied from Mikhail Mikhustin to, um, although he's a relatively new guy. Then we've got, obviously, uh, Sobayanin, who is personally one of my uh, choices. He's the uh, Moscow mayor, for those listening and aren't familiar. Then there's obviously the defence minister, Sergei Shoigu, 
who personally I don't think has it in him. Um, and then there's various bureaucrats. Um, I mean, some people have even touted Medvedev, Dmitry Medvedev, uh, or the head of the FSB. I mean, none of these seem like really viable and, and, and really great alternatives. So it's not going to like be a, a, a radical shift and sort of deviation away from the what we have dealing at the moment. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that. You know, how would we get some kind of transitional government in place when the options seem quite limited? So, uh, this is a very in-depth question, which could actually merit a, a separate podcast. But first of all, Russia and Belarus are very different, cannot be compared, and Russia's circumstances are absolutely different. And I would actually, to answer that question, if I had more time, I would probably go into parallels with Nazi Germany and how the denazification was happening and the the agreement the peace agreement and the capitulation agreement that was signed between the allies and uh, uh, as to the fate of germany and i think russia's fate putin's fate the kremlin's fate is more or less the same thank you very much it was an extremely interesting conversation a lot of insights that i actually gathered myself and a lot of things to think about. I wish you all very good luck and Slava Ukraini. <laughs> thank you, Lucia. Um, no, thank you for joining us. I uh, really appreciate it. It's been a, a very wide-ranging conversation for sure. Uh, and I think that just means we'll have to get you back uh, for a second discussion uh, as and when you have the time and your busy schedule. But um, yeah, really appreciate uh, everything we've said uh, today. Um, and um, yeah, Slavo Ukraini. But with that, everybody, I want to thank you very much for listening, both on the podcast and in the Twitter spaces. Uh, I've been your host, Piotr, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode of The Global Gambit, when we will hopefully be uh, interviewing um, one of the known academics in Chatham House. Uh, we'll also be having a conversation with some members of hopefully the Polish and Romanian uh, con- um congress i guess you'd say our parliament uh maybe having a little bit of a panel discussion but with that thank you very much everyone for listening you were listening to the global gambit we hope you enjoyed this episode if you did subscribe and leave us a review we would especially appreciate it if you left a comment on why you valued this episode and what you took away from it doing so helps us to be discovered by new listeners who would really enjoy our content want to support us further do so by becoming a Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the global gambit, where you can get additional perks and even be featured in upcoming episodes. We actively invite you to follow and engage with us on social media at the global gambit. Got any feedback or suggestions, such as potential guests? Get in touch at the global gambit at gmail.com. Lastly, don't be shy. Download the Clubhouse app. Listen in in real time and even participate with questions or comments to the guests and host Piotr. But until next time, this is The Global Gambit.